0: Hello and welcome. Before we begin, I feel compelled to ask the listeners to take their counters that track the number of times they've encountered the term antimetaboly each day and set them to zero. Although the term antimetaboly might not figure too prominently in today's discussion, today's author calls it, quote, yet another good word, a great word, maybe, end quote. So that we're all on the same page, your antimetaboly tracker should now be at three. Well, make that four. With that, taken care of. Hello, my name is Nathan Smith, a host for the New Books Network. Today I'll be speaking with Eldridge Priest, Associate Professor at Simon Fraser University, um, about his new book, Earworm and Event, Music, Daydreams, and Other Imaginary Refrains, which was published in March of this year, 2022, in the Thought in the Act series of Duke University Press. So to introduce the book and to steal some good words I wish I had written, uh, in Earworm and Event, Eldridge Priest questions the nature of the imagination in contemporary culture through the phenomenon of the earworm, those reveries that hijack our attention, the shivers that run down our spines, and the songs that stick in our heads. Through a series of meditations on music anim- animal mentality, abstraction, and metaphor, Priest uses the earworm and the states of daydreaming, mind-wandering, and illusions that it can produce, to outline how music is something that is felt as thought rather than listened to. Priest presents Earworm and Event as a tate besh two words bound together with each end meeting in the middle. Where Earworm theorizes the entanglement of thought and feeling, Event performs it. Throughout, Priest conceptualizes the earworm as an event that offers insight into not only the way human brains process musical experiences, but how abstractions in the imagination play key roles in the composition and expression of our contemporary social environments and more than human milieus. Unconventional and ambitious, earworm and event offers new ways to interrogate the convergence of thought, sound, and affect. Uh, Now, that blurb would have been a far clearer introduction than my rambling about anti-metaboly counters, Uh, but I wouldn't have been able to use the word anti-metaboly, which we're now up to six. So
1: with that, Eldridge Priest, welcome. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for uh, inviting me to to have this chat with you. And thanks for the introduction. That's great. Uh, I think, yeah, six is what you counted of that word as
0: long as we're including my inevitable mispronunciations and <laughs> I think I think people get it, it, have people if people have read the book I think they'll they'll start to get the gist
1: right so, right, of course.
0: um so to begin with I was just wondering if you could say a few words about yourself your career what you work on you,
1: including your uh I, I believe you're also a composer an improviser that's right that's right yeah so where where to begin uh I often like to say that uh, I, I grew up in the Yukon, actually, because it sounds terribly exotic. Uh, I don't know that it actually is, but um, it's it's a place that is like the Alaska of Canada, um, I suppose. Right? It's this frontier uh, land. So, um, yeah, I, I I grew up there, but then I was I moved all over Canada actually for a long time, and I was studying. Uh, jazz music when I was younger, um, and the places that I ended up landing to study were in Edmonton, in Nova Scotia, a small town called Antigonish, and eventually in Toronto. <clears throat> then I went on to study composition with people like Linda Catlin Smith, who's a Toronto-based uh, composer, and I did grad studies in composition. Uh, in Victoria, uh, at the University of Victoria, with a fellow named uh, Christopher Butterfield. Uh, but during, during my studies in Victoria, I started doing other studies in uh, literary theory, for example, and I was taking courses on Derrida. And as I was finishing my graduate, my master's uh, degree, I started to think that I, I wanted to pursue a PhD, but not in music. And strangely for me, I was married at the time. Well, I was going to go to Ottawa with my then wife <laughs> and start a new degree in uh, cultural theory. And so the, the marriage fell apart, but the, the program for my studies was still in place. And I found myself doing my doctoral work in Ottawa the capital of Canada for those of those people who don't know what Ottawa is um, so yeah so as I was there I, I wrote my dissertation which became my first book boring formless nonsense uh, which was I think subtitled the Ex- experimental music and the aesthetics of failure uh, uh, yeah yeah uh, it's I guess that came out I guess it's been 10 years now
0: yeah I think so, it was 2013 correct that's right that's
1: right wow. that. just about 10 years uh, so yeah, so in that book, that was me still dealing with my my past as a composer of experimental music and uh, as an improviser. Uh, I suppose the the idea of failure had been swirling around me. <clears throat> let's say career wise, but also in the kind of, uh, of aesthetic approach that myself and my peers were taking. Uh, most most of the people I write about in the book are. Uh, our, our, our peers, people that I know, some people are there, uh, that, are, that are actually very successful and some are not so successful. But the whole idea of, of failure in that, in that work it was, I suppose, a kind of conceit, uh, conceit of trying to understand how there is a type of musical practice that one could understand as engaging with expectations that would never be fulfilled. Uh, so, so these. I was trying in that book to not play so much with the idea of failure is success, although the book does abound with paradoxes of all sorts. And um, and as I think, does well, this one as well? Yes, yeah, yeah. In, in in different ways, I suppose. Uh, so, so, I mean, with that book, I I like that book. It was the the form of boring, formless nonsense took. The shape of a hmm, let's say a progressive arc from boredom, which was a very scholarly, uh, typically scholarly approach to understanding kind of the cultural history of boredom and contemporary music, then the work on nonsense, uh, or pardon me, the work on formlessness uh, takes a, takes a, I suppose a more fragmented view. Uh, and uh, the eventually the text starts to resemble the the work that it's describing. So it's full of footnotes and footnotes within footnotes. Uh, and then lastly, the, the, the nonsense chapter kind of goes off the rails and it becomes extremely uh, metafictional in some way. So I'm writing about events that don't really happen, about composers that don't exist, pieces that don't exist, all to demonstrate a certain kind of, Logic that music gets away with, in a certain sense. Uh, so I mean, so that's that's not the book we're talking about today. But I guess that's the I'm talking about it to set up a trajectory of where I'm going uh, now with the work that I do. Um, I suppose I, uh, parallel to all of this, I, I could mention that I've been working with uh, some colleagues, David Chiqueto, Mark Carew. Rebecca Sheldon and Ted Hebert, and uh, we've been working together as the O'Culture, what I like to refer to as uh, a theory band that was originally uh, based in Toronto, but now with the members of uh, Ted Hebert and Rebecca Sheldon, they're in Bloomington, uh, Illinois, and Seattle, Washington as well. Uh, But this group was a group that put on a number of conferences Called Tuning Speculation, uh, that ran from two thousand thirteen to two thousand nineteen, and it was always held in Toronto, apart from one one iteration in Bloomington. Uh, and at these conferences, we would present works that were were very playful and performative, in uh, in, na- in their nature. And the aim of that conference was to produce experimental forms of knowledge making and knowledge dissemination. Although the the dissemination was was perhaps not so experimental insofar as we were still giving papers at conferences, but these papers were intentionally uh, speculative, comedic, let's say as well. Um, And yeah, so with that group, I ended up writing a book called Ludic Dreaming, I think that came out in 2017. Uh, That was a a book that took a lot of the writings that we had been, let's say, quote unquote, performing at Tuning Speculation and put put them into a a book format that played around with the logic of dreams to try to interrogate the way you might think about sound in what we called contemporary uh, techno capitalism, or techno culture, I believe is the, the word we used. Uh, so uh, that brings us up to, I guess, more or less where I am now. I'm, as you as you said in the introduction, I'm associate professor at Simon Fraser University. I, I work in the School for the Contemporary Arts, which is uh, quite quite lovely because this school is an interdisciplinary school. Uh, I I teach a lot of the grad courses in theory, a uh, little I teach a little bit of music composition as well, but otherwise, the 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 nature of this. I guess, uh, department where I am is, is so flexible that I can get away with doing the kind of work that I do that, uh, turns into things like earworm and event and other, other writings that I've done as well, which we can chat about if, if the occasion arises. Sure. No, that, that sounds, uh, that sounds
0: fantastic. It, it, it's it's fascinating how the, how many of it, it seems that many of uh, the types of things that you've been thinking about for this for this long stretch of time uh, are being articulated in these different forums. Um, and I guess that that kind of does get me a little bit to my my first question, which you may have just answered, which was um, how did you get into this project? Because you you intimate that it's it's been brewing for a decade or so. So are these uh, is that trajectory you just, you just unfolded for us something
1: of the, uh,
0: the gest- gestation period for
1: this book? Yeah, absolutely. The, so when I finished, uh, the first book, uh, like I said, it came out in t- 2013. There were, there were, uh, discussions in the book about distraction. I was writing a little bit about Suzanne Langer's work, uh, and I had started, a new uh, a couple of new projects that ended up becoming uh, a chapter in this book about, uh, particularly the chapter about earworms that was probably just after the initial boring formless nonsense or after boring formless nonsense came out. Uh, so, so all of that, those kind of ideas were there, like I say, almost ten years ago. But it was through this, through the work with the culture and tuning speculation, that some of the event side of the book uh developed and so so yes very much i'd say that really yeah it was about 10 years in <laughs> in the making this this work mm. yeah no it's uh i i
0: guess kind of as an aside before we go further because I, I i kept when i was reading this book i'm not sure uh later on when i was preparing the podcast to like how do we capture some of these more speculative aspects of your work in this podcast, which seems so non-speculative. Like it's so, you know, kind of straightforward. I'm saying like, Hey, vaguely, what's your argument? Who are you? Instead of asking like, what were you, you know, like asking the more speculative emergent questions that your work kind of touches on. Uh, And I was, I was just thinking, have you, I, I, am not sure maybe a kindred spirit with uh, do, do you know, Phil
1: Ford? Phil Ford. I don't know Phil Ford.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, you, you just kept saying Bloomington, and I went to Bloomington, Indiana, and he's, he's oh, a an musicologist okay. there. He uh, he runs the podcast Weird Studies. Oh,
1: okay. Uh, okay. I,
0: yeah, mean, no, I, I just, I, I, somewhere in my notes, I wrote down, I think Weird Studies would do a much better, like a much more, <laughs> I don't know if faithful is the right word, but I, I it would play nicely into that.
1: Right, but, okay, right.
0: Yeah, it, might, it might be something to, to, to reach out to you, you guys would certainly have a lot in common. Interesting. Um, but, but anyway, to get to, I guess to get back to the, um, the text or to digress. Um, so as, as I was just kind of noting this text plays with and problematizes what you might call form and content quite a bit. Um, it's split into two parts, the tape-besh binding and, um, and the two parts, different style and method, uh, and you experiment and reflect on the modality of these approaches. So, before we like dive into something like the content, could you say a little bit more about the form of expression you took for this book?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I don't know if people know uh, what the word tetbesh refers to. Uh, to I did tail. not. I yeah. did not
0: until I looked up and looked
1: up how to pronounce it. Think. Right. <laughs> I mean, so it's a binding that has uh, uh, one book written one way, and then you flip the book over, and the there's another book uh, or other text written the opposite way, so that the ends of each book meet in the middle. And you know, I mean, this this is a, a, a I, I used the word conceit already before, but it is, it really is a formal conceit that I. Very consciously employed because while I was writing the book, as I said, it, as we just discussed, it's, it took about ten years. There was a, a number of voices at work in uh, in the composition uh, of the text, and as as I was nearing the end of the uh, the writing process, or what I what I. Began to realize was at the end of the process. I I said like, okay, there's this material. It's a it's a book, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to how to put it together. Uh, the the tone changes, the mood changes, the approaches change. Uh, although there are some similarities between certain uh, certain what became chapters in the book. Uh, so this I felt felt like an impasse actually for quite a while, and it dawned on me actually quite suddenly one day. Uh, that uh, I should actually just keep the book in two halves. And it happened that I was, or that on my bookshelf, I have this stack of uh, what are, maybe people know about this, uh, ace books from the 50s to the, yes. yeah, to the 50s oh, to yeah. the, the 70s, right? Wrote what they called uh, ace doubles, right? So these sci-fi novels that would be uh one novel one side and another novel the other side and i I don't remember looking at those but i remember it just sort of clicked and said i I think i have to do this uh as as one book but split into two halves and i I really want the uh this to be bound ted besh and so i spoke to the series editor and and he spoke to the editor at duke uh, and told them what I what I would what I would like, and uh, amazingly, Duke was very thrilled about it. They were totally on board, and uh, they were excited about it. They, I, 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 think the design team did a great job as well, um, just making it look good. And uh, and ultimately, I think. I don't know, maybe some people disagree, but I think it does serve a, the, the formal, the formal conceit does serve a kind of purpose of letting the thoughts modulate from one side to the other. And in the, in the book, there are a couple times I reference, uh, I, I make reference to the other side, the flip side of this book in order to highlight places where there's a little bit of, mm-hmm, let's say leakage or seepage between the two, uh, the two modalities yeah, no, that's, uh, it's
0: funny that you bring up the, the Ace Publishing, because I believe that the only other time that I had read something like that, or like, I, you know, that I had experienced this form or the first time I had experienced it was, uh, I think it's an Ace Publishing, it's on my shelf in the other room, but it's a uh, Samuel Delaney, Nova, and uh, I can't remember what the other uh, smaller story was. So it actually was this exact, uh, that exact.
1: Uh, Interesting. Place. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're, they're I guess they're the, the contemporary model, although the binding that kind of binding goes back uh many, many sure. centuries, I believe, actually. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, when I when I looked it up, I got a lot I, I learned a lot about the
1: history of stamps, trying right, to figure
0: out how stamps were laid in books upside down. Yeah. So cool. No, yeah, and that's and that's it's it's an interesting aspect of the work, you know, because the in some sense the earworm bit is a little bit more amenable to what we're doing here. Something like, you know, expository prose um, has more typical discursive trappings. Although it, it also has its more event esque wanderings um, in the event side. Similarly, I guess a little bit more on the more on the dreamy, the speculative side. Um, we're, but there are the moments. Like I, I think it's in the first chapter. So you have like little colloquia, or uh, I, I can't remember the exact word you use, Where you're like. Yeah, we're just like, hey, let's talk about you know, Suzanne Longer, and you know, have a little bit more expository stuff so that you can continue the more dreamy play.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, that's right.
0: So yeah, no, but yeah, it, it's a, it's certainly a fun read. Um, but beyond beyond just the form, and we might have a little bit more time to talk about that when we get to the event side. Um. But, so let's, I, to start a little bit with the content of Earworm, um, the first chapter focuses primarily um, on the work of mid-20th century philosopher, Suzanne Langer, um, and you put it in, you know, uh, the trajectory of let's uh, her dissertation advisor, Whitehead, and William James, Deleuze, and then Misumi as being kind of a uh, another modern inheritor of that lineage. Um, can you unpack um, for our uh, anti-metabolic listeners, um, the notion notions of her philosophy that interest you, um, such as the term semblance and forms of feeling, um, and what special
1: role music plays in her aesthetics. Right, okay, sure. I mean, Langer's an interesting... Uh, I think she's an interesting thinker. I actually worked on her... Uh, or worked with her work back in the early 2000s uh, I, was, I was I was fascinated with her her concept of virtuality uh, it, it was different than the kind of virtual that I was looking at with Deleuze's work uh, and it was also something that predated it right and it was this American philosopher so not French it was, it was, very, uh, it was very surprising then I kind of fell out of interest or, or her work fell out of interest for what I was doing um, and then it was as I was finishing my doctoral work, I was in Ithaca at Cornell and I I was a visiting uh, visiting scholar there and Masumi um, actually, Brian Masumi happened to be a, a resident for for the semester and I sat in on his class and uh, he was working on his book Semblance and Event and I was like, oh right, Suzanne Langer, I haven't thought about her for a while because Suzanne Langer features in that work of his um she features in that work quite a bit. Uh, so it kind of rekindled my interest. And again, it was still some of the, at first it was this idea of virtuality that I came back to, uh, the concept of semblance, which is her way of describing what is essentially a, a perceptual illusion, right? So semblance for her is crucial to the way in which we perceive art, uh, specifically art. Um, and for her artworks, uh, I mean, in the, perhaps a little bit of a conservative form, she follows the, the traditional distinction of the arts into literature, dance, theater, music, etc. cetera. Um, but for her, she s- suggests or argues that every art form produces a specific kind of illusion, a specific kind of semblance, isn't it? So, and she uses the word semblance uh, to allude to, I think it was Schiller who... Brought up the concept of shine. Um, yeah, I, I believe that's right. Yeah, Schiller, Schilling. I always forget who, who, which one it is. Um, although she did does credit uh, Jung at one point for the the term semblance, like in her later work in uh, in her Mind trilogy, which is kind of strange. Uh, anyways, so so this idea of semblance was fascinating to me because it was uh, a, a kind of virtuality that. We experience as a not as something that is a delusion, but as something that is completely um, affirming. Let's say in its unreality. The so so you're not we're not we're never fooled by the illusion, uh, except maybe in some cases. But for her, essentially, it is this is this is how we perceive art. We perceive art as this. Uh, illusion, which I then took up as a way of saying, well, it's actually an abstraction. We we're perceiving an abstraction directly, and I developed a way in that chapter specifically of trying to think about semblance and its connection to affect. I, mean, I think the the subtitle of that chapter is the semblance of affect. Um, so, so for me, still, I'm still interested in music. I uh, I still write about music and perform music. And write music. Uh, so, so Langer's theory—what was interesting to me was that it was based, uh, like her 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 theory of semblance and what she ends up calling uh, sort of the significant uh, significant form—is based in uh, her readings and theories about music, and that goes back to her work in 1942 uh, titled uh, "Philosophy." No, uh, pardon me yes, titled Philosophy in a New Key. She has this this wonderful chapter in there um, about the significance of music. And it was through that chapter that she then developed her follow-up book, uh, Feeling Informed, to develop her theory of art, her general theory of art, based on her insights about music, right? So so to me, I I found that uh, utterly fascinating. And the, the fact that for her all the arts, the semblances that they produce, the illusions that they produce are illusions of what she talks about as the uh, illusions of the the form of the inner life. So for me, this was a connection to the kind of Deleuze studies that I was doing uh, on affect theory. And Langer had this idea about the arts producing symbols of uh, of what she called the inner life or of, uh, of organic processes. And... So in that chapter, uh, the chapter, the first chapter of the earworm side of uh, the book, of my book, deals with Langer's idea of semblance. And I tried to update it by bringing it into line with some of the, the work of Deleuze and uh, and ultimately with Brian Masumi, because he, had, I think, had just, yeah, semblance and event had just come out. And then I tried to radicalize it a little bit more by suggesting that something about music intensifies this illusion uh, illusory process and lets us see abstractions more uh, more directly and actually music is a way of hmm, how would i say this of intensifying our powers of abstraction so that's i, mean, I guess a, a quick breakdown of that chapter and what i aimed to do in it
0: yeah no that's i, I thought it was it was it, I I had inherited some old books from a, an older professor, and I'm looking over and I'm like, oh, there's Suzanne Langer, and like he he'd give me a couple of these texts. I have not personally dug into them as well, but like what what you're saying really resonates. I I think that it provides like a nice uh, your your kind of like modernization of it fits really nicely with it. You know, like it, I I'm reminded of the bits and Deleuze where he talks about. Uh, or I guess it's a, a tension that I never quite know how to read between whether sound has some special sound slash music has some kind of special uh, purchase on revealing the virtual or intensity or something like that, or whether that kind of like redup redup or, you know, reaffirms kind of like a, uh, as he says, in uh, difference of repetition, like thinking the transcendental from the empirical, you know, like our empirical notion of sound, how, how, how could that possibly transcend or, or not transcend, but like be the basis of our transcendental, um, understanding of it. And it's a similar. it seems to be a similar type of thing, uh, to, as you were kind of outlining with Langer, um, where she's, she's seeing music at least in its ability, um, to, to call these abstractions or to, to produce it, to have some sense of, have have a particular relation to you know the the dynamic organic processes?
1: Yeah, um, I and, and I, do, I do think and I do think that she recognized that music was her, was exemplary in that respect. She was a musician, a uh, cellist as well. And uh, although I think her tastes were fairly conservative, uh, she and, and I say I draw that conclusion based on just her uh, her sources and her references uh, and the fact that she, even though she was writing in the fifties and sixties about art she was not writing about the avant-garde yeah uh, right right which is which is i i think w- what i tried to update uh and sure. probably what i do with her work she wouldn't like <laughs> yeah you know but, but i mean that's what happens when words are printed on page uh, pages they become material of a kind yeah. Yeah, we, we can't help but produce our own little monstrosities
0: uh, as i surely am of your work as well you know uh Okay, yeah, that, that's great. So let's uh, let's take a dive into Chapter Two, which kind of um, transitions a little bit more into the uh, the, the culture studies critical approach um, and looks specifically at earworms uh, and the relation to contemporary capitalism. Um, so what what roles do distraction and other states of these so called useless thoughts? Or modes of thought play in our contemporary
1: world and
0: how do earworms fit into that class of uh, types of thought
1: right well that that chapter was one uh, that's uh, it seems to be a favorite of some uh, some people it, it, it does a certain kind of uh, scholarship that I that I, I really like um, although it does have its moments of flaring up into. Uh, the, the gestural figurative at some point as well. But in that, in that chapter, I'm really looking at uh, trying to understand the earworm, not just as a, uh, like a cognitive deficit, which is, or a co- no, not deficit, a cognitive excrescence, maybe I could say, um, an anomaly, which is kind of how it's been treated in some of the literature. The scientific literature—it's—it's a—it's a byproduct of thinking. It's something strange. It's excessive. Hence, um, it's maybe uselessness, right? But I, I try to look at it as more of a technical affair. Uh, and the way I do that is I—I—I I, uh, I kind of wind through Bernard Stiegler's idea of techniques that—that our our thinking. Is something that is co-evolves with uh, with the, the mediations that uh, that we produce and that pr- then ultimately produce a kind of thought. And so, I guess I take this approach where I look at the the uh, the technogenesis of, uh, of earworms to understand that actually the we can see how they arise not just by uh, Virtue of some kind of cognitive tick, if you want to put it that way, um, or psychological error, <clears throat> but they arise because we we are coupled with machines that repeat and or techniques for repetition. And one one way we can look at that is the you know the CD players, iPod players, radio, the the recorded uh, form of music is such that it is highly repetitive but then I also make this point of saying like well the there's technologies of repetition but we might understand music itself you know music putting in square, scare quotes for now music itself being a kind of technology that uh, utilizes repetition and I, again I draw a little bit on Langer to suggest that the uh, that what music does is it draws out abstractions and these abstractions are ones where we, uh, where we, we we perceive repetition as a kind of living form, um, and and so I suggest that music is a type of lived abstraction that is actually intensified by our media. Uh, so the, the repetition that is already in musical forms, and even the idea of a note, is a is a type of repetition of a difference between. Um, the, the the oscillating air air, pre, uh, air pressure and the the waves that are emitted is a kind of repetition. So right down to the to the very materiality of uh, of sound, there's a repetition that that, that music sort of captures, crystallizes. Then media, I, I suggest, take up that same type of or take up that abstraction, and then can say like it speciates it and puts it into into uh, into the types of listening conditions where we listen and I suggest listen, listening to it in the background is one of the most uh, let's say effective ways by which that musical abstraction gets intensified um, through media. When, when we actually listen, I think I use the word listening away from it at some point. So this is the idea of how I think distraction works in the development of, uh, of our understanding of earworms. And ultimately, I then take the idea of the earworm and its relationship to uh, to cognition as one that can be related to contemporary uh, notions of cognitive capitalism, where the, the, the fact that we have a brain that is always working, that is, as neuroscientists are saying now, uh, is never not or pardon me, is never fully at rest because we even at rest, the, the, the mind is still uh, wandering, and daydreaming, right? And I get into that in this chapter, but also later in the, in the book. Uh, but ultimately, I, I guess I'm after some idea of understanding how earworms get, hmm, get entangled in the, the practices of cognitive, cognitive capitalism where there's, there's a type of harvesting of our capacity to remember, for example, we uh, we don't we don't voluntarily remember. We we can't help but remember. And the earworms through those uh, the way that music extracts this kind of power of repetition to to, to uh, contract time into into these kind of uh, events. Um, we can see how. Uh, and I think the specific example I give is about something called the it was called Earworm, the Musical Brain Trainer. Uh, it was originally de- developed by Berlitz, and it was a way of using music uh, musical phrases to try to learn language. Um, and the, the, their idea being that let's let's hijack or conscript this power of uh, music to abstract and to produce repetition. Uh, to get someone to learn a language, but uh, a way in which I ended up suggesting this is a, a kind of useless thinking that gets uh, or is, tries to be hmm, made utile, let's say. Uh, yes. Uh, is is kind of doesn't work because it also is I suggest that earworms are also unruly right you can't really control when they happen this is the big uh, the big deal that uh that pop music writers uh try to try to pursue it's like how can we how can we produce catchy melodies ma- melodies that will stick in people's mind and uh etc or jingle writers etc right but it's there's no formula there's a kind of formula but it's not it's not a guarantee There, there are all these other conditions I think that uh, that are required for an earworm to happen. Um, But because I I suggest that because they are also unruly, they don't quite. uh, It doesn't quite let capitalism, uh, these sort of capitalist forces uh, that want to harvest this kind of surplus labor from our very capacities to to remember. uh, In in it ultimately doesn't satisfy these things, I guess, right? Because it, it keeps going long, longer than you want it to go, which is often our experience of earworms. Um, and yeah, and ultimately I think I make the argument that we can think of earworms as perhaps what is the fate of uh, useless thinking? And I draw on Baudrillard actually, and late Baudrillard writes about thinking being relieved from its need to be, uh, to be meaningful, to make sense as perhaps what is the most kind of radical form of thought. And, and actually an essay that he wrote called Radical Thought, uh, radical thought he suggests that the, the aim of thinking is not to make things more sensible, but to make the world more unintelligible and ultimately to make thinking a kind of poetic activity. And, and so I get, I get into this weird place at the end uh, where I kind of say, well, in some sense, it seems like the earworm is this r- kind of rat form of radical thought, but is this, is this what radical thought looks like? Is this poetry?
0: Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I'm going to have to go back and read that, read that ending. Cause I, I kind of forgot that, 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 that gets twisted at the end. Uh, if this is a radical thought, does it end up being something like poetry? Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to go back and muse on that, um, uh, yeah. It, just just in hearing you talk about this, you, you clarified the one thing that uh, as I was reading, um, I, I think you state you stage it well. Um, where I, And I guess I guess that leads it to this open question of like is radical thought poetry um, where I was I, I was the, the earworm at once seems to be of a piece with other types of non-functional thought or uh, um, non-useful, whatever you want to call it. And and as you're as you're mentioning, you know, cognitive capitalism's in there, just trying to scoop as much as it can. So like, my thought is, well, uh, is the earworm something to be mined by contemporary capitalism? But there's also in your work, or in the, especially in this chapter, um, no, I would say throughout, there's the there's something of the excess where it's just like, as you're calling it, the unruly, um, which has that potential for the radical spin. Um, I think we're gonna I, I think on my end i'm gonna have to leave it leave it open if uh if it's poetry but uh i'll have to I'll have to mull on that a little more
1: yeah it is i don't know that i actually come to a conclusion but it's, it's sure yeah. it, it's the it's the the offering i guess that it's, mm. it's like if if this is what radical thought looks like can we sure. be happy with it and i'm not yeah. sure
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean there's there's something about like if you were able to tie this into a nice knot it'd be, you know, something that you could just like hand over to capital to continue you know what I mean? Like if it were so simple it would have already been co-opted, you know, but you're something about it is kind of le- lending it to this open-endedness.
1: That's right. That's right. I think yeah, yeah I think that's um to me to me that's uh, I don't know if it's a, that is exactly a paradox so uh so much as it is the uh yeah the 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 self-contradicting nature of an earworm repetition to to crystallize something but to then uh, as you know if you're a Deleuzean you read that repetition is actually kind of uh, an expression of difference right so so something that is highly repetitive like an earworm actually doing some some work to uh, express difference and that's that's really weird yeah oh yeah yeah and it points us right to yeah
0: that kind of the contradiction, uh, of sense. And yeah,
1: yeah, no, that's, that's great.
0: Um, I, I guess to take a little, leave the earworm and exchange it for a different type of worm. Um, uh, and to get to your hodgepodge of theory, uh, what do, you, what do you want to tell us about Upstream Color, which is a fantastically wacky film?
1: Oh yeah, that was a strange uh, piece of uh, cinema that, uh, I think that actually came out in 2013, if I remember correctly. Uh, right, so, with your, right with your first book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, I started writing something about that, that film shortly after it came out and eventually it became this chapter. Uh, yeah, Upstream Color is this strange film about a by Shane Carruth um, ab- about what happens when I uh, was. Geez, I always f- trying to find it difficult to describe that film, but it follows the life cycle of a of a parasite, a worm that is used by someone uh, someone who just goes in the credits by the name Thief to. Uh, drug essentially and hypnotize or mesmerize uh, a victim who he then bilks uh, their their life savings from. And eventually this, the, the people he hypnotizes or infects with these worms, uh, they're drawn to a fellow who, who draws the worms out of their body, puts them in his pigs because he's a pig farmer. Um, and it turns out that he's also not just a pig farmer, but a composer and uh, when his pigs have piglets the worms are in the the parasites are in the piglets he throws the piglets into the into a stream uh, and the parasites eventually wash downstream get absorbed into the roots of these orchids that grow uh, on the riverside and the and color the orchids blue now i mean that's sort, that's sort of the life cycle of the worm and and in the orchids is the worm that thief in harvests. The orchids is the worm from, and then, or he buys the worm from the people who harvest it from the orchid, right? That's right, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So we we learned that uh at the end that the, the orchids were part purchased by this guy, the thief. And um but there's much more that happens between two two people who meet each other and they learn or they kind of learn that they were both infected in the same way. Uh, and they've developed a strange kind of connection to these pigs that host their former worm. <laughs> um, so so, so I guess that the film is strange enough, so I tried to figure out a way to write about that film and write about the way in which the worm manifests a, a refrain, I think I actually call the chapter The Worm Refrain. Um, and the the way we understand it, I i understand the refrains is from from delus and Guattari's idea of it's a uh, kind of a rhythm that is not necessarily metrical but it is a way it's a kind of periodicity that connects other types of disparate uh phenomena together and ultimately what i described with the uh the, this life cycle of the worm that captures other people other people's desires, their insecurities, and their sense of self is uh, sort of taken over by this worm refrain, uh, becomes a way of understanding um, how, how in a, in a, I guess, how we can live through that kind of abstraction. And ultimately, I talk about the ways in which the characters in the film experience a loss of themselves and the, the nature of habit is how they have to try to re- regenerate their sense of self. And I talk a little bit about Deleuze's ideas of, of habit being a kind of larval self. Uh, I think that's near the end of the chapter. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange film, and it's actually a strange chapter. Kind of, I suppose, the, the nature of that chapter leads into the uh the or it, it reveals some of the voice of the following the other side of the book, perhaps in a way that the the previous two chapters don't
0: yeah no that that's that yeah I think you refer to this one uh as um yeah combined with what you might call a hodgepodge of theory, which is a, which, which kind of it, it marks a of a step away from a little bit more of the, um, you know, discursive, I'm going to hear the thinkers I'm, I'm engaging with. Here's some of their thoughts. Here are my tweaks. Here are my radicalizations. And this, uh, there, there's less of a, uh, like an intentional, like less of a trying to create a holistic argument, but just kind of like thinking through this film as you're
1: saying, and finding yeah. a sense of the, the form of this, the form of this chapter is, um, is, is a constellation, I suppose use that kind of benjaminian idea um although i wasn't thinking ex- like explicitly about that but it is really a constellation of thoughts that that in some sense yeah auger auger the uh the flip side of the book
0: sure no and that sounds like a good segue uh i i as i kind of mentioned earlier um i i had a little trouble you know kind of Figuring out how to fit this second half, this a little bit more amorphous dream esque um, event, uh, into the I guess kind of like the medium of or the the, the four the, the the type of structure that we, we've been going back and forth with, where you kind of go, hey, here's what I'm talking about. Here's a here's a complete thing. Whereas the event side is a little bit more explicitly trying to like pull out this you know to make a very simple contrast between like, even though the first chapter was talking about something like becoming, it was still kind of, it was, it was written in the mode of being, you know, like I'm, I'm more or less, you know, using expository prose, whereas the second one really takes that, the idea of becoming and enacts it in a way as it's trying to unpack some of these things. Um, so And, and I guess to, 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 to give the due credit uh, my opening spiel about the uh, uh, anti-metaboli, uh, and the stealing words that I wish I was that I had written um, are pulled from this second half. But that that was my that was my way of kind of roping it in. So instead of I guess giving away the punchline, which there isn't so much, which is kind of hard. It's all in the setup. So I thought you might uh, give us a little bit more of a setup. So for the listeners um, and hopefully future readers of this event side, um, could you give us a little? Uh, Introduction to it, a little explanation sure, of uh, can, what, what you're trying to wander through.
1: Maybe I can, yeah, maybe I can talk about uh, some of the, the the conditions for the emergence of these uh, these chapters. I think at some point I had been reading a lot of Bachelor, Gaston Bachelard's work, and uh, I don't know. Again, he's, he's like Langer, someone who is very popular in the 20th century, but then. Uh, his work seems to have faded largely from uh, contemporary philosophy, contemporary theory. Um, but he was—he was a philosopher of science in his first half of his career, and then the latter half of his career, he started writing about uh, the imagination and developed a kind of philosophy of the imagination. And he goes through like, and he was a bizarre writer. Um, he would write about really obscure, uh, un- unknown thinkers, poets, uh, and and he would grab parts of their work instead of doing this kind of expository, as we've said, a kind of expository work, <clears throat> excuse me, to unpack a poem, right? He would just say, look, here are these images, and he would work with images and then develop this prose around a little fragmented image as a way to try to talk about the kind of phenomenology of the imagination. And one place he suggests that the way to talk about images, the way to talk about the imagination is to use the imagination. All right. Essentially, that's what he said. He puts it in a different way, but uh, essentially says, like, to, to, to dream about, uh, to talk about a dream, you have to dream uh, and essentially do the kind of dream, right? So, this is the kind of work that I set out to do with these. Chapters and these chapters were written over a couple of years, actually, and worked uh, worked at the this tuning speculation conference that I mentioned that I uh, put on with the members of the culture, uh, and I presented them in other places. So they always had a certain, sorry, I don't know if you can hear that. Someone's texting. I don't, it's interrupting. It's, me. They're just little earworms. They're, they're just earworms. Okay. It's a little, little background.
0: It, yeah, it's, yeah. it's quite all
1: right. Contemporary capitalism. We can twist that in at the end, I'm sure. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, so where, where was I? Um, oh, so yeah. So these essentially, I, I guess in the book, I referred to them as reveries as, as little dreams and, I suppose, drawing on some of the work that I did when, with the culture in ludic dreaming, I said, well, let's let's take up the idea of dreaming again uh, as as the driving logic. And so in some sense, the thoughts are constellated, but there's more of a kind of concatenation between one thought and another and how another thought dovetails with a, 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 another thought, not because it is logically sound, but perhaps because there is a... Uh, let's say like even a rhyme, there's a, there's a rhythm in, in the, the, the text that I'm using that then actually spurs a kind of uh, discussion of rhythm itself via, uh, for example, I think I, I talk about Virginia Woolf's use of rhythm and I, and I start taking up a kind of rhythmic way of writing and to also suggest that rhythm is something that ent- entails a kind of unrhythmness, uh, a rhythm, as well, uh, so I, you know, I, I wouldn't call it poetry, but I'd say that there is a there is a poetic sensibility that drives this. Uh, right, if we if we want to say that part of what drives po- uh, poetry is rhythm, is pace, is tone. Um, there's a, there's wordplay as well, um, you know, and oh, I think for for me, it's I, I suppose I try to. With those thoughts about uh, about earworms, about animal mentality that uh, that we mentioned, <clears throat> um, I also talk about uh, listening to melodies backwards in time, which is a kind of another idea that Bachelor had. That these are ways in which you can you can talk about them non-linearly, right? And so the the entire uh, the gambit, let's say, of the of the earworm, or probably the event side of the work is to try to understand actually how, how thinking is a process and sometimes it's recursive. And so this is where I, I suppose I take up the earworms, the logic of the earworm is this recursive repeating thing that kind of modulates fragments, stops, starts, goes away, comes back, uh, comes back a little bit differently. Maybe it's in a different key than the actual key uh, you would hear it um, in uh, as on the recording as I said, there's the, the, the repetition is an expression of some kind of difference happening. So so what are the ways that we can twist this and let thinking unfurl itself, not by making sense, but by making a kind of nonsense? Um, and if you're, again, if you're a Deleuzian, this idea of nonsense is not a nothingness. It's often a, a, an abundance of sense, an overabundance of sense. Uh, so I'm, I don't know if that clarifies it or just makes it a little bit more dreamy. What I've just said. No,
0: I I think that's a that's a fantastic introduction. It's uh, it's it's it as you kind of as you kind of note, it's a, it's it's a very dreamy passage, you know. But you, but you provided, like I said, as I kind of asked, uh, hopefully listeners coming to it can get a sense of something what you're doing because it's not you know it i guess to like to help i guess picture it a little bit it's not it's you know it's not say like um it's not just like random syllables you know there there are there are thoughts but it's like watching these it, i'm what i'm trying to say is it isn't i what, what you're saying it isn't necessarily nonsense but it isn't also sense and it's kind of playing with little fragments of things that kind of uh I guess makes sense Um, and just kind of seeing how they, how they, how they play out, you know, so it's not quite stream of consciousness, but also kind of stream of consciousness, you know, so it is this kind of nice balance between um, I don't know. I, I really appreciated how it had something of a discursive unfolding You know, like, it's not like I was reading, you know, James Joyce and you're talking about a moo cow or something, you know, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, I could follow it, but also there was, it it struck a nice balance between giving me something, me as a reader, I guess, you know, to kind of like think about on the sense side, but also allowing it space in order to kind of wander in these kind of, yeah.
1: So, no, I think that's a beautiful. I mean, I I think I probably took the the actual idea of discursiveness uh, maybe too seriously in, uh, or too literally, uh, you know, the idea of discursive, um, uh, discursiveness is the, is a kind of wandering right from one topic to another. And, uh, and so, so yeah, wandering is probably a great way of, dis- of describing, uh, describing it because when you wander, you're not, you're not nowhere when you're always somewhere, but the somewhere is not necessarily, uh, the destination. It's not necessarily where you you planned uh, that you planned to be, uh, but it it follows from where you came, right? And and in there's a uh, there's a kind of sense that gets dragged along or made out of it. Um, Maybe after the fact, and I and, and I play with that a little bit as well. With uh, the, and again, that's this kind of logic of the earworm, I suppose. There's a, a kind of recursivity of, of thinking that takes place through this writing and a way of trying to show writing as a kind of recursive practice as well. Sure, right?
0: Yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, I, I guess another adjective that I would want to throw with wandering is it's like a purpose, a purposeful, a purpose of like, a there, there's like a, you're following a line. You're not following nothing. It's not chaos, but it's, it's allowing the wandering to kind of, you know, uh, unfold. Beautiful. Well, we're coming up on about an hour and I just wanted to, uh, make sure that I give you the opportunity. Um, are there any other things you're currently working on or, um, Anything else you, I guess, first of all, anything else you want to say about the book, if there's any, anything we missed in our, in our, in our quick pass, but also what, what is it opening up onto in in your future?
1: I think, I think what it's, um, I don't know that i what else I can say about the book, like the, uh, there, there there's some interesting parts about mimes and, uh, Zombies that make yeah.
0: <laughs> what was it? The 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 amount of sense in the world is directly proportional to the number of mimes or something. I that I, that's, I, I, that's, there's some quote in there. Yeah, that,
1: sound, that sounds right. <laughs> um, no, I, so I mean, this book is set up. I think the a new direction that I'm working in is dealing with daydreams a little bit more specifically. Uh, a project that I started a couple of years ago, and it's going to become uh, intensified. In the, in the next coming years, uh, is just looking at this idea of daydreaming also as a kind of useless thinking, but in the past, let's say 10 years, uh, daydreaming has like the earworm in some way it's, it's been rendered functional, uh, and, I, and it's been rendered functional because there was a discovery made in the early 2000s about the when the brain is at rest, there's a kind of network that lights up um, and scientists being positivists have to understand that this must be good for something uh, and to, to appeal to the kind of evolutionary uh, justification that if the brain has a coherent network when it's not being tasked specifically thinking something it must be doing must be doing something for some good and the psychological correlate to that uh resting brain state is the determined mind wandering right or daydreaming as some kind of absent-mindedness um and then very quickly it was understood that okay well what's going on this must be good for something it's it seems to be ways of uh daydreaming seems to be a way of consolidating the self rehearsing for the future, um, generating a uh, you know, kind of tonus of the, of the body that's, that gives us our sense of place in the world. I think all that's fantastic and, and arguably reasonable, but I think there's a critical side missing uh, that overlooks the fact that these were useless, like idleness, daydreaming, were for, have historically been useless moments. And maybe actually to get back to this idea of radical thought, uh, being a kind of aspiration. As, as you know, Baudrillard suggested, it's an aspiration that we can have once we hive off the, uh, the things like calculation and reckoning to machines. What do we have left? We have, we have thinking that doesn't necessarily make sense, thinking that makes instead poetry, right? Uh, so I'm not trying to be romantic and saying like we should keep daydreaming as a, uh, a useless activity but I do think that there is something about uh, reverie and thought that doesn't produce anything that is perhaps st- still important in the world and, and maybe that does make me seem kind of like an, oh, an old-fashioned modernist in some way that there's you know it almost sounds like art for art's sake uh, so I mean, thought for thought's sake, we could say uh, is a way of it. Um, you know. So I'm just in the preliminary parts of this writing right now. I'm I'm still working with Langer's uh, ideas. She developed a theory of mind in her later uh, her later life that has some interesting uh, ways of dealing with the fact that that the mind is is continuous with biological rhythms and uh, and if these biological rhythms are not being captured by by habit by various uh forms of life then what we still have an activity going on right there's still processes going on but what are these processes doing and uh and i'm actually interested in understanding that not as it's necessarily uh for for the functional uh for the functional purpose but for the fact that there this is another kind of excess right yeah no and it's a you know it's uh
0: all I, I i was i thought about and i don't know if this makes it more romantic or not or more utopian but the, you know the the kind of thought experiment of like what would a well like what's the role of of thought and humans and like something like a fully automated you know communism you know like so right. say all of the you know yeah. The, the capitals exploitative you know means have been taken care of and we you know develop the robots that can they can give me my hamburger and um you know uh, h- how do we construct a meaningful life and what role does thought have that isn't necessarily just you know i guess so i don't know if ends driven is is the correct way to put it but no i think that's a a incredibly rich uh you know place to be inhabiting so yeah, that's and, great. and I
1: think I think it's complicated because there there's uh, there seems to be this interest in daydreaming um, now in a way that there hasn't been, but it's happening at a time when we seem to have when we seem to have less time to do it, right? There's the this, there's our social media, etc. The other types of media that we have are always sort of capturing attention. Some way, I think that um, that attention is being captured so quickly and always moved from one thing to another, that, that it's going to achieve a kind of escape velocity that, that we, we thought will actually lift off from, uh, and this sounds totally ridiculous, but I kind of like it, thought will lift off from its material conditions and can finally escape into not having to be itself.
0: Yeah, no that that just to tie in, I guess one other author I we didn't really mention here today, but he's he's one of, he's wacky and I I like him and you mentioned him a little bit. It remind just hearing you talk about that. I guess my own comment as well. The um, Willem Flisser's, uh Flisser's oh, what is it? The Into the World of the Technical Image, or I, I'm blanking on the exact title, oh, yeah. but it's like a speculative like. Writing in the future about how the you know the we'll just be hooked up to apparatuses constantly producing information and it's a very a very fun and wacky book, right, uh, but right. yeah the, the idea of it lifting from its uh you know material conditions is yeah I I think it resonates nicely with that yeah right <laughs> Great, great cool. um well okay I mean that's uh, that's that's all I that's all I have here um, that's, that's just fantastic. Yeah, I just want to thank you so much. It was a lovely book. It was fantastic talking to you. Um, Great. And yeah, we hope to have you, when when your daydreams uh, enter a book form once again, or I guess,
1: whatever form it takes,
0: Uh, I'm sure we'd we'd be happy to have you back on the show.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Uh, And again, thanks for inviting me to have this chat. And thank you for reading the book, actually, as well. Yeah, no, it was great. It's my pleasure. So... Great. All right. All right, Nathan, take care.
0: Thank you.